Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast with your host, Scott McMahon. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, filmmaking freedom for the independent. This is a podcast where we focus on making and selling your film for online self-distribution. A perfect way to get started is to pick up the book, How to Make and Sell Your Film Online and Survive the Hollywood Implosion, while doing it. It's available as a paperback, in Kindle ebook, as well as an audiobook. In fact, you can get the audiobook for free when you go to survivetheimplosion.com. When you go to that link, you can sign up with Audible for their free trial and get the book for free. Again, that's at survivetheimplosion.com. You know, one of the most influential resources for me in regards to understanding the new landscape of indie film distribution has been Peter Broderick. Uh, let me back up here a bit. So before I started Film Trooper, I wanted to know how an independent filmmaker can make a profitable and sustainable living as a filmmaker, simply by making films and selling films. This one fundamental question led me down a path where I was discovering that the traditional ways of making and selling films were changing dramatically. This also changed how filmmakers made money. The big question is, what happens after you finish making your film? It wasn't enough for me just to blindly enter my films into festivals and cross my fingers and hope that I would be discovered or the film is discovered. You probably heard this before, but hope is not a strategy. So I needed a better strategy. I needed to understand the end game better. And that end game being distribution. And this all leads to Peter Broderick. In September of 2008, Peter wrote an article for IndieWire entitled, Welcome to the New World of Distribution. In the article, Broderick compares what would normally refer to as the traditional distribution as the old world versus what was coming in as the fast and the new world of distribution. So let's start with Broderick's comparisons between the two worlds. So in the old world of distribution, the distributors and the distribution companies were in control. But in this new world of distribution, filmmakers will be in control. Now the old world of distribution there was usually like this overall deal, meaning a dis distribution company would pay you, the filmmaker, the producer, to have all rights, you know, have the rights, the licensing rights to do whatever they want with your film for like 25 years. And they would have like over, you know, over all global territories. So it was like an overall deal. And, you know, you got paid what you got paid. Now, the new world distribution is what um, Peter Broderick has coined the term hybrid distribution or a hybrid approach. And then the old world of uh, distribution, uh, you would have like fixed release plans. So, you know, you had this traditional window. Well, we're going to release it in the theater. We're going to go to home video or no, they would do like release in the theater, then go into like TV and then home video and DVD and whatever it might be. And so those windows and those traditional release plans were, you know, falling apart, obviously, because the new world distribution has to have flexible release strategies and not have fixed release strategies. And the old world distribution deals with like mass audience where the new world distribution, the filmmaker has to focus on core and crossover audiences. And in the old world of film distribution, there's the rising costs of film production, but mostly marketing and advertising. And in the new world distribution, you, you are literally dealing with lower costs because the equipment is cheaper, the access to um, the editing and visual effects, you know, uh, packages, and as well as now distribution. Everything is so much cheaper. So the, the costs have to come down. So in the old world of distribution, you know, viewers were reached through a distribution company, a distributor. 
Um, whereas the new world distribution paradigm is that you will have direct access to viewers yourself. And so the old world distribution paradigm dealt with third-party sales, where the new world distribution deals with direct and third-party sales. So it's a hybrid. Again, not just third-party sales, but direct, you know, direct to your audience, direct to your, your fan base. And in the old world of distribution, you know, a film license or, you know, whoever controlled the license of that film property would sell it by territory by territory, you know, where the new world distribution has none of that. It's complete global distribution. It's like one access point and everybody has access to it. In the old world distribution dealt with cross-collateralized revenues, whereas the new world distribution is going to deal with separate revenue streams. You're going to have, again, if it's hybrid distribution scheme, you're going to have various forms where you're going to receive money for your film. And in the old world distribution, there was the anonymous consumer. I mean, you know, nobody has a loyalty to a distribution company. Nobody really even has a loyalty to a studio. Um, you know, yeah, we see Warner Brothers and like Paramount or Sony, you know, or MGM or things like that. But those companies come and go. There's no loyalty. The difference is in the new world distribution, you're going to have loyal, true fans. And that's where the filmmaker has the control. Between 1997 and 2002, Peter was the president of Next Wave Films. It was an IFC company, an independent film channel company, and they provided finishing funds for independent films. One of the films happened to be Christopher Nolan's The Following. So after The Following, Nolan, of course, went on to make Memento and The Dark Knight Trilogy and all those other amazing films. So a side note on finishing funds or financing. Um, in the world of indie film, when you're trying to get investors to invest in your film and you hear the term finishing funds or P&A funds, this usually means money that comes in at the end of production to help in post-production costs or in the case of P&A, which stands for prints and advertising money, prints would be the high cost of the actual prints made from the film negative. Then those prints in film cans or canisters would be shipped from one theater to another This is quite expensive to do, but you're probably thinking, well, wait, isn't everything digital now? So why not just send a hard drive or provide a link to download? Well, yes, that is happening now, but the term P&A is still used. Now, most of the money goes just straight to the A, the advertising funds. Here's the important part of the finishing or P&A funds. When an investor comes in at the end of your project and decides to hand over money to help you finish and pay for advertising, Most savvy investors will want to recoup their money first, ahead of all the other investors in on the project. This is commonly known as last one in, first one out. And why is this important? Well, if we look at something like the film Snowpiercer, starring Chris Evans, you know, Captain America himself, and he starred in this uh, movie, this this quirky sci-fi film made by a South Korean director. The film was reportedly made for $40 million, but it still needed additional funding for the P&A, the advertising and, you know, prints and advertising money. The film was initially financed by companies in Korea and Canada. So Radius, a boutique label from the Weinstein Company, picked up the distribution deal for Snowpiercer. Normally, a film made for $40 million would have to make $80 million to make its money back. Why? An additional 20 to 40 million is required to be spent in the P&A budget outside of production, outside of the film. So that's why 80 million dollars is needed just to make their money back. 
This is, of course, a distributor trying to make money from the traditional distribution model, where they have to split the revenue 50-50 with the theater owners. But when this film was released, it was released on VOD at the same time it went into select theaters. Uh, this is day and date. That's what they refer to as. Uh, the revenue split is usually about 70% going to the distribution company, the filmmakers, and 30% going to the VOD platforms. Snowpiercer only made about $4.5 million in theaters domestically here in the U- U.S. and was reported to make $6.5 million in digital. So it's about $11 million domestic revenue off a $40 million film, so it doesn't look so good. However, remember, this film had a South Korean director, and the film made over $87 million in international theatrical box office revenue. So where does Radius fit into all of this? Well, being that they were the last ones in, they would get to take their money out first. So depending on how they structured the deal, they could have only put in $10 million for P&A, while all the other investors ponied up like $40 million to make the film, yet these investors who put their money in first will have to wait to get their money back after the wine scenes get their share first. It's possible that the wine scenes made the money back in the domestic revenue alone because they didn't have to pay really that much on domestic P&A or advertisement. I'm guessing they contacted the press and announced that they were going to do day and date, again, meaning that they would play the movie in a few theaters and release it on digital VOD at the same time. At the time when this was going on, this was newsworthy. And newsworthy is free press, so no advertising spending needed. (laughs) So they probably paid a minimum fee of $2,000 to get their film onto iTunes and other VOD platforms. So $4.5 million made off a $2,000 aggregator fee, and that's pretty good. So why, again, why would I say $4.5 million and not $6.5 million, like I said before? That's because, again, 70% of the reported gross was $6.5 million. So they would only take, you know, recoup 70% of that. And that's where you get the $4.5 million price tag. Now, once the Weinsteins made their investment back, they can start collecting a percentage of the revenue for profit, while all the other investors have to wait in line to eventually get their money back and then earn a profit, be part of the profit sharing. But the bottom line is that a smart, savvy film investors that stay in the business, that pretty much have a good track record of being in the business for a long time, they pretty much become finishing funds and P&A investors. They only focus on being the last one in and the first one out because there's less risk for them and yet they get to take all the glory. Because, you know, when you look at Snowpiercer, you think that it was a film made by Radius and the Weinstein Company. And but lo and behold, it was probably made by all the other production companies that come, you know, all those titles, the little graphics or all the companies that are involved with it afterwards. Um, but because they only put a little bit of money in and they get to decide whether or not they go straight to VOD or put in the theaters, you know, they're just looking to get their money back first. And once they get their money back, if the film does well, like it did internationally, you know, they'll get a cut of that, you know, profit as well. So just remember that in terms of this concept of like, there's different tiers of film investors and where they fit into, you know, recouping their money. So back to our story with Peter Broderick and the IFC's Next Wave Films, because they were providing finishing funds for independent films between 1997 and 2002. But during this time, the old world of distribution, if I can say that correctly, the, <laughs> the old world of distribution began to crack. And in the wake of this new world of distribution, thanks to a technology disruptor called the Internet, 
Well, you know, things began to change. So Broderick witnessed this, these changes, and when IFC came to shut down Next Wave Films for the simple fact that the advance monies in distribution deals started to dwindle, and instead of adapting to the changes, IFC got cold feet and just closed shop. But that didn't stop Peter from helping filmmakers navigate the changing landscape. And as you'll hear in the interview, Peter began giving talks about the changes, and this led to filmmakers hiring him. And a few years ago, a documentary team made up of two guys, Keith Oshwalt and Christopher Rufo, hired Peter to help them craft a strategy to self-distribute their documentary, uh, Age of Champions. Now, back in episode number 77 of the Film Trooper podcast, I actually interviewed Christopher Rufo, and I'll probably most likely rebroadcast that episode as, episode as well, too. So anyhow, the big takeaway here is that Rufo's film... Age of Champions was a documentary that followed a group of senior citizens competing in the Senior Olympics. They did the festival tour and nothing happened. No distribution deal, nothing. So in two years of self-distributing the film and applying the advice that Peter gave them, they made $1.5 million in two years off their film. Remember, there were only two guys. They net each of them about, you know, 400,000 400, 400, each or if not, you know, close to a half a million each for their efforts. They are the glowing example of filmmakers actually making a living from making their films. I'll supply links to all of this in the show notes, which will be located at filmtrooper.com forward slash 124 for episode number 124. Okay, the reason why I'm giving so much more in the intro before we get into the interview with Peter is that I only had 30 minutes of his time, and there was so much that we could have gotten into, and hopefully we'll have him back for, uh, you know, onto the podcast for a longer session. But I wanted to point out that Peter coined the term hybrid distribution in 2005, and other prominent indie film distribution advocates like John Reese have also started using the term hybrid distribution as the future for all indie filmmakers looking to build a sustainable living making movies. Now, Broderick is the president of Paradigm Consulting, a company that helps filmmakers and media companies, not just filmmakers, but also media companies, develop strategies to maximize distribution, audience, and revenues. So, without further ado, here is Peter Broderick on the Film Trooper podcast. So, hi, Scott. Hi. Um, <laughs> glad to have a, a chance to talk with you. I... I know uh, what great work you've been doing, and uh, I'm pleased to, you know, be be part of it. What I do day to day, uh, working with filmmakers, is help them design customized distribution strategies for each of their films. I work with filmmakers, not just in North America but around the world. I just returned from a speaking tour in Europe where I. I did a presentation in London, and then I did a day-long workshop in Zurich for Swiss filmmakers. Then I was at the International Documentary Festival in Amsterdam and, and did a presentation for their film academy. And then I went to Cologne and did the closing session for the doc campus there. And then went back to IDFA and did uh, a session uh, for the attendees for the conference as a whole. And it was, uh, it was a great trip. And it's interesting to see what's going on in other countries and how that, you know, compares to what's going on in the U.S. right now. And maybe we can talk more about that later. But yeah. day to day, the way it works, a filmmaker gets in touch with me and tells me about his or her project, asks me if I'll help them 
figure out distribution, and then I'll look at the I'll look at the form and see you know if it's if it's a good fit. Then I'll talk to uh, those that I think are the you know most likely to be a good fit, and then we'll have a conversation. And then I'll figure out whether I. I'm confident I can make a meaningful difference in their distribution as opposed to, well, you know, I'll give it a shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't agree to consult with people in that mode. I really have to believe that I can, I can really help them and that they're going to come out ahead working with me. So these days, I'd say I'm doing maybe one out of 40 projects that comes my way. Um, so I've been very lucky to have, you know, great, a great mix of projects. Um, you know, ongoing and uh, and as distribution changes, I'm learning from all the projects that I'm working on uh, what's the state of the art. Because as you know, things are changing on what feels like an hourly basis to me. <laughs> yeah. And so at this point, I've worked on I've consulted on over 1,300 movies, and um, and the filmmakers I've either been by the filmmakers' side or they've shared the results with me. So. I've been able to share what I've learned from them with the new filmmakers that I work with. So everybody's kind of helping everybody. Yeah, definitely. Now, you know, I was mentioning the the article you wrote for IndieWire, you know, back in 2008, uh, Welcome to the New World of Distribution. Has there, what has you've seen in the last, you know, nine years or so that has come to fruition or hasn't, or, you know, or still mistakes that are being made by filmmakers in respect to that, um, to me, it was a groundbreaking article that because I was like, oh, wow, this is huge. And that set me off in a whole different path. So, well, I it's fun to be asked that question. Uh, no one's asked it before. So <laughs> you get points for that. Uh, thanks. <laughs> I haven't thought it through in a coherent way. So we'll just uh, improvise, you know, kind of an analysis here. Uh, the article appeared in September uh, <clears throat> 2008 which is a little more than eight years ago. And uh, I had no idea what kind of impact it would have. And, it, and, and what's interesting thinking about it after eight years is to what extent it's still relevant today. Um, the, you know, this idea of there's a new world and an old world of distribution, which coexist. It's not like the old world is over and now we're living in the new world. Mm -hmm. It's like these worlds um, are side by side and overlap in many ways. That that concept has gotten, I think, you know, kind of widely adopted. And so I, you know, hear people talk about the new world all the time. <laughs> and I think the value of the, the concept of the new world is that things are really different. It's not like, oh, they've changed a little bit, or there's this thing that's working and this thing that didn't work. There is a fundamental difference between these two worlds, and however long the old world continues to exist, um, that will remain true. So when I was <clears throat> on my tr <coughs> trip um, through Europe, what struck me is that a lot of distributors and a lot of sales companies are looking backwards. Hmm. And by that I mean that they're thinking about the way things used to work and they're hoping that they can continue <laughs> to operate in the ways that used to be effective. And, and I'm thinking, well, 
I, I think people should be, if not looking forwards, which is what I really think they should do, they should be looking at what's going on in the present and trying to figure out what the new challenges and new opportunities are. So when I was at the Toronto Film Festival in September, I spoke to a major German company and I asked the executive, I said, well, what new things are you doing uh, these days with digital? And, and he looks at me and he says, we're not doing anything that we haven't been doing for 10 years. Hmm. And I thought that was a curious comment. Was it defensive or was he, <laughs> or was he proud of the fact that he, he was only operating in the way that he'd always operated? And, and I, it, I must say, I find it mystifying because when you think about uh, things changing, you say, well, the best companies are going to want to, you know, experiment a little bit, to try some new things, keep doing what they're good at, and then see, you know, what works for them and what doesn't work for them. But uh, instead, I have the sense that a lot of folks are just hoping they can retire <laughs> before they really need to make major changes. Oh my gosh, that's that almost, that's so true. Yeah. <laughs> and and the, you know, it's it's kind of um, I don't think it's a good model um, given the pace of change. And I also think that if people are you know appreciate the moment we're living in, which is certainly going to be longer than a moment where after decades of things being a certain way, then then there became this time of rapid change, which is continuing. So it's exciting. It's interesting. You know, we don't know where it's going to go. We don't know how it's going to you know work out. But but things we're living in a time of revolutionary change. And I think that, you know, it's a great it's a great moment in history to have the chance to, you know, be part of things. So if if people are operating out of fear and making decisions out of, you know, they're afraid that if they, you know, take these new steps, you know, the house of cards will, you know, collapse. That's I don't think it's a good attitude in terms of how to maximize things right now. And there's an interesting example where a couple of years ago, I can't tell you exactly how many years, but. I was uh, at a film festival and I was doing a one on one with Ted Sarandos, who mm. at that time was and still is, you know, chief content officer at Netflix. Yeah. And um, so I was I was talking with him about a number of things. And then I said to him, Ted, have you read the book, The Innovator's Dilemma? And he looked at me like, who's been talking out of school as if <laughs> I, somebody from Netflix had been telling me about, you know, whatever. And I'm, I'm not, no, I said, I, I read it recently and I thought it was very relevant to your situation. The Innovator's Dilemma, Innovator's Dilemma is written by a Harvard Business School professor and it's about how a company that's an industry leader deals with technological, technological change, particularly as new companies come in into the um, area and, and try to you know, push their way forward what what does the established leader in that field do? Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> so if you think about um, the kind of contrast between the Netflix approach and the Kodak approach. <laughs> yeah. Um, so with Netflix, it turned out that everybody in Netflix had been reading and discussing that book. Hmm. 
and um, and and you can see at that time Netflix was just doing DVD. This was before they started distributing things digitally. Right. And so you can see how they've managed the transition from the of a DVD model. I mean, they're still doing DVDs, but and actually it's still making them profit. But uh, as DVD becomes less and less essential. Uh, they are now this, you know, dominant player with digital distribution. But that's because they they looked forward, and they saw, you know, what that what the opportunities were, and then how they could become a global company, not just, uh, you know, a U U.S. based um, company. Whereas with Kodak, and I I have personal experience here because. I was very friendly with the the Kodak uh, executives. I liked them a lot, and I was always impressed by the quality of what they did. Um, and in fact, Next Wave Films, the finishing film fund mm -hmm. I ran, um, Kodak was interested initially in in financing it, but then they they only wanted to you know try it out for one movie, hmm. <laughs> like. One movie doesn't work. I, I, you know, I'm not going to let the success of the company rest on what happens with a single film. Right. And for them, it was too radical to, <laughs> or too risky, to you know, uh, support a finishing fund that was going to do more than a single film, uh, which I guess shows you how risk averse they were. Mm -hmm. So, anyways, after Next Wave launched in 1997. I was at the Cannes Film Festival in, in 1998, and I saw The Celebration and The Idiots, two films that were shot, you know, on small digital cameras. And um, these are really cameras designed for taking pictures of babies' first steps and showing them on the living room television. But I was in Cannes, the world's most prestigious film festival, watching these films on a, on the in the Palais, where with 2,500 other people, and and I said, "Wow, this is a revolution." beginning. Mm -hmm. So when I came back from um, uh, Cannes, I talked to Mark Soloroff and Tara Benaruso, my teammates, and they said, well, why don't we create a presentation and we'll take it to different festivals about this, this digital revolution that's beginning. So I said, okay, that's great. Let's do it. And so I and Mark and Tara would go to different festivals, uh, you know, and show examples of digital films that were being made around the world. And uh, when we first started doing it, I think probably most of the people in the audience thought we'd lost our minds, <laughs> um, that it was going to be filmed forever. But in fact, uh, th this digital change happened really quickly. Now, then Kodak um, <clears throat> decided I was the devil oh. as an advocate of digital filmmaking. And I said to them, I'm not... I like Kodak, you know, but I think what you should do is reposition yourself so you're the you're the uh, image company. So whether people want analog images or digital images, you can do the best. Um, but uh, you know they had this long tradition of of you know being film centric, and even though my, they might have seen the iceberg up ahead, you know they couldn't turn the ship, mm -hmm. which I thought was really sad because there was so much great stuff they'd done over the years. So on the one hand, you know, you have Kodak who, that 
which was locked into its um, its history and its tradition and and you know the what it did fundamentally, and Netflix, who which uh, saw what it understood what it was doing, but knew that the day their days were numbered doing that, mm-hmm. and then reached, then looked forward and said, "Wow, there's this digital opportunity, and we should seize it." So, in a way, those two examples embody the difference between an old world and a new world attitude. And another thing about the article that's that's interesting um, is that I use this term um, <laughs> hybrid distribution, which you coined, yeah, that, yeah, uh, yeah, in two uh, two thousand five, I think. Yeah, and and so the idea of hybrid is not oh, it's either you know a distributor is releasing your movie or you're doing it yourself. Uh, quote, self-distribution, which everybody demonizes. <laughs> but the idea of a hybrid model where you could make distribution deals with certain distributors for certain rights, and then you could retain rights to sell the film directly uh, from your website and maybe do screenings and maybe even do your own educational distribution. So that way you're working with teammates who are you know good distributors, giving them the rights they're good at, and then keeping the rights to, to sell directly and to do things that you can unique, uniquely do. I believe that uh, as we look look back over these eight years, this concept of hybrid distribution has become more important and um, that the, f- the filmmakers who are thinking about this possibility, even though splitting rights is more complicated takes more work you have to get the partners all in sync where they know what each one's doing and which time period and all those things but i think for for more and more filmmakers hybrid distribution is plan a and traditional distribution is plan b right and and i it makes that makes sense to me because a few years ago someone asked me what percentage of the filmmakers I worked with who made all rights, all, gave all the rights to one company uh, as in a kind of traditional deal, ended up happy. <laughs> I, I, th- I thought about it for about 30 seconds and I, um, I decided that uh, the, the percentages would be maybe 3% ended up happy and the other 97% ended up somewhere between apoplectic and mildly dissatisfied. <laughs> and if you asked me that question today, I'd say I think 2%, you know, is better. And because I do a lot of speaking around the world, and mm-hmm. I often poll audiences about how satisfied they have been with their distribution, that that reflects <laughs> what I, what I, you know, the feedback I get from audiences about their own experience. So I, I think that if you um, if you look at it in a certain way um, and you say, well, it may be more work, but in the end, I, my, the likelihood that I'm going to think, believe, feel that we did the best we could with our distribution is much greater. Nice. It's interesting because you brought up a lot of, um, you know, your talk with the, the analogy with Kodak and like Netflix. I remember reading something about uh, with Kodak where it's like Apple, when they changed uh, the, once they identified that they were no longer like a technology company or computer company, 
and they dropped like uh, Apple like computers. They became Apple Inc. or just Apple. This concept of they knew that they were in the lifestyle business. And so if you see some of their like um, commercials, like them versus maybe like Samsung, where like uh, Samsung will list you the features of their phone. And then Apple shows a lot of like their their ad strategy is showing lifestyle people, uh, you know, having a personal story, but the device is just there. And then someone mentioned that, you know, Kodak had a problem when the digital revolution you know, came about because like, you know, probably firsthand because he's like you just mentioned, but they I guess they were so focused on being part of the, the photochemical processing business and not the business of preserving memories. You know, so to have like a whole business in alignment with a, uh, a mission statement or a mission purpose. So if Apple is like we're in the lifestyle business, then then they can make changes or add new products as on to this lifestyle concept as opposed to just being technology based. And then where Kodak, if they had you know taken your advice and in hung themselves on the uh, the concept of we preserve memories, whether it's digital or analog. You know, right. they could be better off. Or like it's I guess the old ad the old story is the railroad business. They thought they were in the railroad business and not the transportation business. So, mm-hmm. you know, when mm-hmm. the the Ford the car came into the automobile came in, it just, you know, wiped them out almost. <laughs> so to some extent. But I th- I thought well, I was curious about the Netflix thing because you mentioned that you saw them you know, being able to adapt to the changes with the technology and having the opportunity to travel around the world and speak to so many different, uh, you know, film festivals or film conferences and different film companies. Um, from what I understand is with this, the different um, hybrid strategies of distribution of someone selling different rights to different foreign territories, whether or not that be television rights in Germany or Japan or what, what it might, what, you know, what it might be. Um, with the advent of like some like Netflix going global, um, how does that endanger sort of the television rights in the foreign territories? Uh, and because I remember like the old way of somebody making money or getting money set up for independent film would be, um, the old way is like you need foreign pre-sales as you saw like in next wave when IFC said like, you know, the advances are not, are not as lucrative they once be so we have to sort of shut down next wave yeah you know the that division they had i was curious like so you have this advance money coming in from pre-sales in foreign territories which allow a producer or production company to get match funding to some extent to then make the film because at least they know they have a distribution deal in place to get uh their their content um out to the different markets uh internationally but if the pre-sale or advance sales or these different rights are then, you know, maybe encroached upon with something like Netflix going global, where a global audience can just have access to a global library, what happens to sort of the film financing or the film funding paradigm globally? Or has that even been touched upon with all the different people that you've talked to in these different, you know, countries? Or is this still far out or has it been shifted in terms of, of the threat of that old way of um, financing? Well, you know, that's a good question. I think that it is already clear that in terms of not pre-sales and financing, but actual distribution revenues, that Netflix, you know, is has become, I don't know, the 900-pound gorilla in a certain way in terms of international distribution. Mm-hmm. So if Netflix... Um, 
if it's Netflix or a TV sale in a territory, um, then the the simple approach <clears throat> for, from the standpoint of a lazy sales agent would be, okay, I'll just make a Netflix deal worldwide, and then I won't have to do any work uh, territory by territory because there won't be any opportunities, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, well, the better sales agents are experienced enough with TV sales uh, and know their markets that they can analyze it market by market, and they could either exclude a market <clears throat> from from a net overall Netflix deal, or they could work out the timing so that there could be you know a TV window before Netflix. Um, so I think in that case, the best sales agents are able to do it an, uh, an analysis where they look at the you know pros and cons in each territory, or at least the, each major territory, and figure it out. On the question of financing, I don't think for you know most of the independent filmmakers that I work with, pre-sales are are have been real, you know, for a long time. So I don't think Netflix really changes that because I think that the way things are financed, you know, it's a combination of um, self-financing, you know, crowdfunding, uh, grants, investors, you know, all those things that people kind of piece together. Um, but the idea of an independent, you know, pre-selling France or Germany and actually having some revenues that could, could go toward making a movie I, I think those there might have been a period of time. I don't know how long it was, and I don't know how long ago it was. <laughs> Halcyon days, um, but I don't think it's I don't think it's real anymore. So the bigger question I think is, as as Netflix has grown um, more powerful internationally, what happens when Netflix shifts as they are doing toward a greater focus on original content? Because for, from the standpoint of documentaries, uh, Netflix used to, you know, have all the great documentaries, uh, at least, you know, the contemporary ones. And now uh, it's much, Netflix is doing less acquisition and also not necessarily renewing licenses. So they might make a two-year deal on a film and then, then that's it. They're not going to relicense it. So that that's a real challenge um, because you know revenues from Netflix um, you know have been very important to filmmakers and also from the standpoint of you know their careers their awareness and their you know prospects having a film available on Netflix so more people could you know see their talent and um, you know that's that's gotten harder so I think we're in a in a moment where Netflix is headed in one direction and now Amazon is coming along mm -hmm. uh, and they're starting to operate on an international level, um, although they're, they've only up until now, I think, been in, in really in four territories, the U.S. obviously being the most important. So um, so there's and then Hulu at, at one point said they were going to be doing more with documentaries and then. I don't know if that's if that if that happened or if it's original documentary content or it, content or how that's changing. 
So you have these different figures out there, um, you know, mo moving and shaking. And from my standpoint, I think what filmmakers need to make sure that they're doing is retaining the rights to sell directly from their websites worldwide. So let's say they make a deal with a foreign sales company and, and, and my view of foreign sales companies and, and domestic producers reps is that people who are good at selling rights in the US are not good at selling rights overseas. Mm -hmm. People who are, good at, who are good at selling rights overseas are not good at selling rights in the US. And I'm not saying there aren't some exceptions to that, but you know, that's, that's pretty true. So, um, you know, you get into the situation where, um, you know, people have to think past the ability of their sales company to sell the film in more than a few territories. So let's just say you sign on with a sales company and they make deals in, in 10, ter 10 territories. Well, you know, that could be some significant revenue um, and they, they could be 10, you know, important and influential countries, but that still leaves over 200 countries where nobody has access to their movie. So they need to be thinking about how they can make their movie available to people outside of the territories that the sales agent sells, sells to. And it's not hard to make it available because they can make it available digitally from their website, clearly. Mm -hmm. But then the next challenge, and this is the real frontier that's, that I think is most exciting, is how you market globally. Hmm. So you can make a film available for your website, but if nobody knows about it, <laughs> yeah, it's not going to have you know much much of a life in that way. And so, the people on the frontiers of um, you know kind of global marketing are independent filmmakers right now, and particularly independent documentary filmmakers. And I could give you some examples of that, but. To me, if you think about aggregating audiences, let's say 200 people in Argentina buy your movie and, you know, 15 in Paraguay and, you know, 5,000 in France, and you start aggregating audiences worldwide, you can get to critical mass, hmm. both in terms of revenue and in terms of, you know, building your, your mailing list and your core personal audience. So however things are changing with Netflix and Amazon and, you know, iTunes, uh, I think filmmakers really need to make sure that they're doing the best they can um, making their film available uh, globally and then marketing it effectively and learning as they go about what's working and, and what's not working. And ideally, if they can build a core personal audience uh, that they can take with them film to film, I think their chances of having a sustainable career are, you know, are, are, are much greater. That concludes my interview with Peter Broderick. And if you notice that he mentioned Mark Stolaroff, who worked with Peter at Next Wave Films. And Mark is the founder of the Make No Budget Films Seminars and is a past guest on Film Trooper. He was actually on our podcast um, back in episode number 106. Anyhow, I hope you got a lot of value from this conversation. I particularly liked how Peter recommended that filmmakers learn how to market globally. Distribution has been solved, as we can all make our films available to the world right now. But without marketing, and marketing differently depending on the territories we target, then who cares? 
How do you get people from all over the world to care enough to take time out of their lives to watch your film? And that, in the end, is the bigger question. Well, you're in luck because over at Facebook, I've created a free Facebook group called Indie Film Marketing for Self-Distribution. And in this group, we try to curate and help each other with marketing questions as many filmmakers are involved with self-distributing their films. Now, I encourage you to join, but please, please read the group rules because a lot of filmmakers try and post articles that basically exclaim things like, hey, check out the trailer for my film or like my page and I'll like your page. All posts are moderated, so I encourage people that if you want to add an article that says, check out my film, at least add a question to the group that sparks real conversation about the topic of marketing and self-distribution. So you can find this group over at Facebook. Just go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash indie film marketing, or just go to the blog page over at filmtrooper.com and you'll see on the sidebar, there's an invitation to the Facebook group. So I look forward to seeing you in the group. And in the meantime, as you know, don't go away empty-handed. If you are stuck trying to make your film, then I invite you to a free gift over at freegearguide.com. That's uh, an equipment list of everything I made to make a feature film for $500 without a crew. Again, that's at freegearguide.com. Thanks for checking in with the Film Trooper Podcast, and I will see you next time. Film Trooper, filmmaking freedom for the independent.